listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is part two of our conversation with Marzella Lanfranchi and Andrew Ola. Both of them wear many different hats. And it's their work at Transformers Foundation that brings them together. Mazela is an independent, sustainable fashion and textile consultant, founder of Cotton Diaries, and intelligence director at Transformers Foundation. Andrew is CEO of Ola Inc., a textile development, marketing, and sales organization. In 2004, he started the Kingpin Show, the renowned and first trade show for the denim supply chain. He also spent 15 years working for the Fashion Institute of Technology (FIT), and most recently, in 2020, he worked to help found Transformers Foundation. Transformers Foundation is the unified voice representing the denim industry and its ideas for positive change. It was founded to provide a thus far missing platform to the jeans and denim supply chain. And a central point of contact for consumers, brands, NGOs, and media who want to learn more about ethical and sustainable innovation in the industry. In part one, we covered how Andrew and Mazella ended up in fashion, what they think is missing from the sustainable fashion story, and why they strive to put supply voices at its center. All of this takes us to the present, and the launch of Transformers Foundation in 2020. In this episode, we get into the details. What is Transformers? Why have suppliers from the denim industry come together, and why don't other product segments of the fashion industry have something similar? What are the eight ethical principles, and how exactly will they serve as constitution for the ethical denim council? All of this takes us to the present and the launch of Transformers Foundation in 2020. In this episode, part two of our conversation, we get into the details. What is Transformers Foundation? Why have suppliers from the denim industry come together, and why don't other product segments of the fashion industry have something similar? What are the eight ethical principles, and how exactly will they serve as a quote-unquote constitution for the forthcoming Ethical Denim Council? If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast, or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. I want to. We've talked around it a little bit already. We've talked about sort of the impetus for starting Transformers and what the need was and why it was something that both of you were passionate about. But I want to go into a little bit more detail. What exactly is Transformers? Who can be part of it? How is it different from an industry association? What is what is Transformers? Transformers, yeah, a nonprofit organization that was put together.、Mm-hmm. Um, in New York City, with the idea being that the,、um, the entity would work towards bringing sustainability more quickly to the denim industry, that we want to change the needle, move the needle 
on speed and change first towards sustainability in the denim industry. Who can be a member or who can be part of, of, of it? We will take help from anyone. I don't care who you are. So we're happy to have anyone, you know, work with us if they want to spend time. Um, but the founders of the entity are all people in the jeans industry, one in the supply chain, one way or another. So they're supply chain members. We have no retailers, no brands um, as founders. We we don't want them, actually. Um, yeah, we want the supply chain. And what was the third question? How is it distinct from an industry association? <laughs> I don't know any other like us. Um, I'm sure there is something like us, but I don't know who they are. We're distinct in, in I think, a couple of levels. Um, one, we're distinct because we only focus on the jeans industry. Two, we're distinct because everyone in the organization is um, who works in the organization is like underwater in the industry. We're fully in. We're all doing nothing but working in the industry every day. Marzia does it. Um, all the board of directors do it. I do it. We're, we're all, this is what we do. Um, we're not hired help or anything like that. We're just people from the industry that are devoting time um, to make a change. So I think that's really different. Yeah. And I, I think you're I, totally right. I, I don't know of any other entity like Transformers. I mean, you have industry associations at a national level or even a regional level, but it's still not quite the same. It's still not all the representatives across this, not all, but you know, rep what I mean by that is representatives from all these different levels for a particular industry. And I'm curious, you know, it's one thing to sort of recognize a need and it's quite another to actually mobilize resources and start something. And so I'm curious when you first had this idea for Transformers Foundation, was it hard to get people on board? What, what were the main the main challenges there's there's a kind of a um i would say odd um passion and obsession about the product uh, of denim that actually brings denim people together in the denim community together more than any other product i've ever experienced in the fashion industry it's uh, one of it, it it's on its own I was working for a luxury brand. I was working for a lot of, a lot of many brands uh, that didn't have denim as a product or in their collection or they had it as a side product. But when I got the chance to interview um, because of a project I had, uh, all these um, leaders actually was at one of the camping show and I actually interviewed Andrew before working at Transformers. I realized that there was something so unique about it. Everybody had these, uh, I don't know, this drive of making making this industry change and come together. And I don't know, it was it was something that I've never experienced anywhere else uh, in uh, in in fashion. It was uh, it was something that really called me because um, there were. You know, I, I interviewed, I remember Adriano Goldschmidt, that, that is called the godfather of denim. And the history that he brought and then this um, need 
to change this uh, industry inside out, it really felt that it was um, it, it was um, it was real, and it wasn't um, it wasn't just a marketing claim. It was something that came from uh, from uh, from the soul. <laughs> I got to tell you a story, but Adriano, I have many, but I can tell you one story. We were in Hong Kong together one day at the same time, and we stayed in the same hotel on the weekend. And I said, oh, we should get together on the weekend. So what we did is, and this is typical him and me, we basically had breakfast together, then we'd go to our rooms and we'd work, and then around one thirty we had lunch together, then we'd go to our rooms and we worked, and then we would have dinner together like at 9 o'clock, then we'd go to our rooms and sleep and do the same thing the next day because we love what we did. Yes, and this actually brings me to something I've been really dying to ask you, I think, for many months since I even heard that Transformers existed. Because, like, when I uh, just, I guess, a bit of backstory or context, but when I was working as a factory manager, and I, my background is in human rights. And I knew that for me, working as a factory manager was a way to understand a world and that I ultimately wanted to go back into sustainability. And as I was sort of starting to think about how I might want to go back into sustainability, I was feeling very frustrated with the conversations, the types of conversations that I was seeing and hearing and had no interest in being part of it. And one of the few things that I could think of that might actually you know, that, that really interested me and that I thought, oh, this might be something that's disruptive is the idea of suppliers from the fashion supply chain coming together and advocating more collectively. And I think in the wake of pandemic with all the canceled orders, you're starting to see that a little bit more. I mean, I think the one example that I can think of is the Star Network, which has come out or is in the process of coming out with uh, red lines on on purchasing practices, and the Star Network is a is a regional as supplier association, and they work in in very close collaboration with our our friends at GIZ Fabric. And if you're interested in learning more about that, we actually talked to the spokesperson of the Star Network, Miran Ali, in episodes 29 and 30. But it's something that for a long time in the fashion industry was really unheard of, and so. Marzi, I think you've shared a little bit about your take on this, but Andrew, I'm I'm equally curious your take. You know, why don't other product specific segments of the garment industry have a Transformers Foundation of their own? I think they will once we are successful in what we're doing and we get attention. I think it's just it's on it's it's, it's about to happen. We're going to start the Ethical Council soon. And I think once the ethical council, not we're going to start it, but we help found it, it'll run by itself. But once it gets going and has some impact, I think people will notice it. Suppliers are scared of the, of the brands and the retailers. And yeah. there is an oversupply on the supply side. And they have a very generally very weak positions. And the ones that have strong positions have nothing to complain about or won't because they're part of the system. So, for example, you have a factory X who already supplies all the major brands and has orders every month and is fine with the price and is fine with the way they're, be, they're treated. They're, they're not going to get involved with us at all. They have nothing to say to us. They don't want to shake their boat, rock their boat. The ones that are mistreated are petrified because they don't want to lose whatever they got. They're clinging on. 
So we, we don't offer for some people a, a good a good solution. But when it comes to the, the denim industry, the, the denim mills, I think and the supply chain, I think um, not necessarily the garment factories, the people will, will band together and, and um, say what they have to say. Like why further in, you know, deeper within the denim supply chain is that fear different, do you think, or not as paralyzing? So I'll give you an example. Um, so we created, um, sorry to change subject, but we created the eight ethical principles for purchasing. This is such a small thing. It's basically writing on a piece of paper, almost like the Ten Commandments. It's almost a theological document. It's a document that we don't lie to each other, that we don't misrepresent things, that we keep our word, that we have respect. We're not, we're not asking for people to do anything, but what I think is intuitive as human beings dealing with each other, whether we're on the subway or whether we're doing business. And one of the largest gene suppliers in the world rejected to endorse it. And I wrote him back and I said, oh, yeah, why is that? Why would you reject that? And he said, well, we don't need that because the customers are already being kind enough to us. So I said, well, you know, there's a society. I wrote him back and I said, there's a society and not everyone drinks and drives, but we still have rules that you can't drink and drive. Not everyone is a murderer, but we still have laws that you can't murder because some do. So the point isn't about you. The point is to set up a society that we're all proud and uh, to be a member of and one that has certain rules. This is how societies work. We have rules to protect against those that don't want to follow the rules. So will you participate in that? Do you believe in a society with rules? And again, he responded and said, I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about those eight ethical principles. Sure. Because um, I think that's a perfect transition. Um, Marcia, last year, you together with Transformers Foundation with Andrew and, and I, many others put out the report, Ending Unethical Brand and Retailer Marcia, Behavior. a great job with that, by the way. A great. It was such a fantastic report. Yes. Uh, congratulations. Um, and that report covered what happened to the denim supply chain in the wake of COVID-19 why it happened, and some thoughts on the way forward. And the eight ethical principles were one piece of the way forward. Can you tell us a little bit about them, you know, and who endorsed them and what it could mean for the supply chain and for brands going forward? I think that would still be on Andrew. And we saw all the cancellations and all of the requests for deductions and all this kind of stuff. The fact of the matter was all that stuff have been, has always been going on. It just all happened at one time. It was like a plethora of events that have been going on forever. So when we got to it, we got to it, of course, very late. There's nothing we could do to impact what happened, but we talked about what we could do in the future. And what we can do in the future is to create and help or facilitate this ethical council that we're talking about. And the ethical council cannot be a legal entity. There is no way that we or any nonprofit can get involved in the legality of a contract because they're very complicated. They're constantly moving. You'd have to have tons of really excellent lawyers involved, which is not what we wanted to do. But at the end of the day, what we thought was that every brand cares 
about their image. That's why they greenwash or do good things. They do it because of their brand value. None of, very few, except for Patagonia and a few companies, very few of them did it, um, how can I say, naturally. <laughs> they didn't start their companies <laughs> with ethical values and with sustainability 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Patagonia did, um, but most companies didn't. So they're doing this now because it's part of a wave of society and it's important and it's a business reason. So that means that they care about their reputations. They care about how they're perceived by their customers and society at large. So the single thing that I think every brand would care the most about is whether they're moral versus immoral. So when we looked at the cancellations and we looked at the, the discounts and stuff like that, we thought to ourselves, well, what if um, the public knew that they were immoral? or had acted immorally in this particular case. That should be something that they don't want to happen. So the ethical council will be set up to, to judge that. Of course, they'll be set up to, to try to resolve the issue first, because we really don't want to get into judgments. But we do, we think as a, as a foundation that it's really important that there's an entity that tries to resolve, but in the cases where there's no resolution possible, which we hope would be very little, that there could be an, um, a group that would, would judge them. And the judgment has to be based on something. And those that's why our eight ethical principles, by themselves in the atmosphere, they look very lame. But once they're attached to the ethical council, they're the constitution of the decision-making. And it's not limp. It's super serious. We uh, recently had a conversation with Matthijs Crité from IAF, yeah. mm -hmm. and we were talking about, you know, they're working on their right. red lines for purchasing practices and together with the with the Star Network, which we mentioned earlier, which, of course, is supported by GIZ Fabric. They're looking at how they're going to implement that and how they're going to. And this was exactly the conversation that we had with him, too, is what kind of teeth can you bring to the table that might not be legal? Reputation is a big, big deal. And the reason no one really understands what a big deal is because no one's playing with it today because they're all afraid. But at a certain point, um, reputation is, is the most important thing. None of us on this call or this podcast would want our name on a website out there where five well-educated, esteemed people studied something we did and decided that we acted unethically. And that information is in the public domain. I don't think your parents would like that, your spouse or your, your lovers or your friends or your neighbors. Nobody would want that. Who would? Yeah. Imagine that, that, that a dean of a university, that a, um, someone from an NGO, a judge, a school teacher all work together to make that judgment. How would you feel? So then the composition of the ethical denim council is really important. Is that right? Yes. If um, a crazy person on the New York subway says you're, you're an idiot, that's one thing. But if the Dean of um, the university says you're an idiot, that's kind of different. 
So yeah. So how do you go about? How do you go about? I mean, I don't know if you're. You don't have to speak to this if it's too soon. But how do you go about putting that together? What types of to sort of have that credibility, and also different people have credibility with different audiences. So how do you go about striking that balance? We'd like somebody from on the council. We'd like to have it like a little basketball team of five people, and one person would be from academia, one person would be from the industry. Like a manufacturing industry, not the jeans industry. One person would be from an NGO. One person would be from legal industry, and one person would be from um, governance, hopefully. And do they have to agree with one another? I mean, democracy. Let's say democracy allows for dissent. Hmm. We have picked a number, an odd number. I like odd numbers or prime numbers, so that's why we have democracy. If there's an odd number, then there's a winner. We hope that um, a year from today that there will be some incidents inside the council that will be effective and that will um, be landmarks. For example, if one company has four judgments against it, what does that say about that company? So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We hope it helps. Our mission is not, it's quite- we're, we're all going to work, you know, for, for virtually for free, so our mission is to help the industry, not to, to cause problems or anything like that. I just feel this is really a genius idea, and I, I quite like the idea. Marcia, did anything about the response to the report surprise you in any way? But I don't think we, we've said anything new, let's be honest. We just, the way that we said it was different, and the way that it spoke to some people was different. and. For me, being a non-supplier and having read hundreds of reports from NGOs and sustainability standards, etc., that's what surprised me. Um, that was different. That the the take that a lot of suppliers had uh, from reading the report, they told me, you know, finally someone. Sp- speaks about this power imbalance in a way that is understandable and relatable and in a way that it's actionable. And Andrew, how about, how about for you? Um, we did a report and nobody really acted or commented or did really very much, which is what I expected. Um, and I think that um, it's a precursor to what we're going to do next. So it, it was really just, I would say if it was a, a play, it was the introduction the first act will be the, um, the IRS approves our uh, ethical council and that we find someone to run it. And then we raise the funds for it and the ethical starts, council starts to go into business. And um, I think that's the first act. And I think that will be a different, a different um, time. You know what? It's, it's really funny. And Marzia will, will tell you this. The farmers have been promised programs, identity programs, or all these different things where they can make more money for years and they never get it. The factories have been promised systems where they're going to be able to be treated properly for years. And all of it is just hollow. It's just hollow, empty stuff. No one has ever delivered on helping anybody. Maybe for a moment, but not in a sustainable long-term way. And what we're trying to do is that. And so nobody believes us. And I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I understand them. I don't even try to raise our volume and say, no, 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 we're going to be different. 
we, we, we're the same as everybody else. We're nothing until we start acting. And this is why I said there's transformers and there's adopters. If we actually act and we actually create something that is functional, everybody will love it. And if we don't, we'll just, there'll be no noise. We will be like the rats that just disappear into the woodwork because we, we failed. And uh, I think, meanwhile, the, we, we established this um, um, work with the Ethical Council. What's important to highlight is that we're getting endorsement on the eight ethical principles from, uh, from suppliers. And uh, we highly encourage um, suppliers to endorse the ethical principles. We're trying to get feedback from, from NGOs and endorsement, which is a little trickier. Um, because of these, uh, you know, uh, wanting to be, um, you know, like all the other purchasing practices agreements, I think. <laughs> and then... Um, what what do I you think, mean by that? What do you mean by that? Um, what I mean is that um, something, I don't know, the, the NGO style that I've seen is uh, something that is not very... It doesn't speak to the suppliers, but it speaks to the brands mostly, and uh, and it's a it's a it's a compromise between what brands want and what suppliers need, and often ends up in being the lowest common denominator, and yes. um, and I think that's that's for me. I'm I'm generalizing here. I think there's some NGOs that are looking at um, at opening that space to suppliers finally. And this is the suppliers' voices and getting more suppliers' voices to the table. And uh, I'm hoping to see that more. But uh, for now, we're focusing on the, um, on the ones that would like to endorse um, the eight principles. And then also I would say that we're um, looking at reaching out to brands for this endorsement and see who comes on board. I mean, when, while we're getting endorsements and... Uh, and uh, I, I was hoping what well, what I wish it happened quicker was the what we and what we promised in the in the report was the formation of these um, suppliers working group mm. um, to come up with more more than just the eight ethical principles to come up with what they need right now and uh, um, and on very specific subjects. And um, and I think I'm hoping in the next months we're a very small team, so the resources are um, pretty spread thin. But we're wanting to hear more from the suppliers and more what they need right now, and so that we can we can embed it in the back in the in the ethical council once that's established. Am I right, Andrew? Yes. <laughs> yes. You raised a really I think important point about other and i think you both sort of spoke to this in your own way but that i think when you talk about purchasing practices that sometimes you end up striking this or other initiatives have sort of ended up striking this balance or lowest common denominator i like that word choice marcia but between sort of what brands want and what suppliers need and 
at least my take on why that is, and I'm curious your takes on this as well, it has a lot to do with the funding. And you mentioned that one of your next things on the horizon is raising funds for the Ethical Denim Council. And at least my my take on it is that a lot of times the reason why that compromise is struck is because brands are the ones with the funding. So how are you guys tackling that? I can answer that question. Um, The funding originally for the Transformers Foundation was 100% from the supply chain. Mm -hmm. And the way we did it is we charged whatever our little company could afford. (laughs) So if our company could afford it, then we basically would assume anybody could afford it. We're a tiny seven-person entity. So the manual fees are what we can afford. Um, And everyone matched us. Going forward, we'd like to get outside funding. But we need to have a history of action. So we're hoping by the end of this year that we would be able to attract external funding um, based on our performance for two years. So we would like to show that, and then we would like to appeal to um, other funds that might want to support us, grant us something. Like foundations or? Yes. So we would like, we're going to seek out external funding at the end of this year. And that's for, um, for the, um, the Transformers Foundation. For the Ethical Council, which has to be its own entity, um, I will assist and try to find funding for that um, once it's ready. But we, we're going to run that on a like ridiculously lean budget. Not even yeah. no salary, there'll be nothing. Again, I come back to the conversation we had recently with Matthias, and that was also one of the things we chatted to him about is why is there, and we sort of came at this topic in a, from a different angle, but we were talking about why is there so little supplier representation in these conversations? And one of his thoughts on that was, you know, that it's not something that, like governments, for instance, are interested in funding. They're much quicker to fund like union work or um, that's also one of the challenges is that even just raising awareness amongst the circles of people who might be able to fund this, that this is needed is is sort of like a, a an initial hurdle that still needs to be cleared. And that conversation with Matthias Crite of the International Apparel Federation is going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So Look out for that. On on this, um, Kim, just we we talked about the due diligence legislation coming up for Europe, mm. and uh, I think when we submitted for the open public consultation, we thought also on the on the on the question of enforcement or supporting mechanisms that go alongside the due diligence legislation. The the ethical council could definitely play a role, even if it's small. But that's uh, that's something that if maybe the governments are looking to fund yeah. as a support to their, you know, their uh, big dreams about due diligence and uh, how how they're gonna enforce it. And, and I, I hate the word enforcement, but. Um, uh, how how they're looking to support the companies that need support in this transition. Mm-hmm. So, I spoke at an SAI conference in 2005, so long ago. And on the on the um, that that seminar, 
there were three of us speaking. There was um, Dan Henkel, who was in charge of the GAPS um, social social compliance area and, and all of their environmental things, um, who's no longer there. And he was the top dog in that role um, for a big company. Dan was there. And Robin Cornelius spoke on behalf of SAI. Robin was on the board of directors, I think, there for 10 years. And I was asked to speak on how buying and canceling impact workers. And like if you buy too much or if you want to cancel the impact of the workers. And it was ironic because at that time, um, the company Dan worked for canceled an enormous order on me, which was a funny little subject to come have at the time. They had just canceled. Um, our factory made um, about 1.7 million yards a month, and we were selling them 700,000 a month. And they decided one day they didn't want it anymore. And what, what was the impact? Well, the impact was obvious. The impact was the workers were released. Um, when a, a customer says that they need it six months later, not right now, um, and it's been planned for production, the workers are released. So it's not really any different than coming to the factory and setting it on fire. The people that do those decisions don't understand the implications. They have no cost for the implication. It's an invisible attack against the factory and human rights. And so the real question is, I would like to cancel this. What is the impact on your workers and how do we cancel and have you keep your workers? And I think people don't understand the very, very simple thing of what a cancellation, what delayed shipments mean and how they're facilitated. They also don't understand that if out of the blue, they suddenly ask for double the quantity that was expected when they know the factory has only a limited capacity, what that means. What it means is if the factory comes back and confirms the order that they're outsourcing it and we no longer have an idea of the conditions of the outsource. Because when they send in their social auditors, they will take them to the factory and they will see that the factory is bustling and busy, but they will not take them to the outsource factory. So I think these are two things that I was never asked ever again to speak at one of those conferences, ever. <laughs> um, and yet what you say is something that I myself have said and that I think in different shapes and sizes we have heard from every single supplier we've had on this show and probably every single supplier we have talked to off the show, right? Yep. So I think that it's really important to say that, really important that everyone understands that. And the way people buy and the way they cancel are the um, very important. Yeah. And it's important to say that it's not only fast fashion brands, it's all brands. Well, and because I was working at a luxury brands and I had to make a call at 8 p.m. on a Friday night to say to my supplier that he had to work Saturday and Sunday when he had things planned with his family and with his beautiful children. And it only, well, and that was the case. And it was a, it wasn't a question. It was, you have to do this. Otherwise you're not going to get, get any orders from us anymore. And it was, it was really uncomfortable for me to do these calls because I understood the implications of it on the other end. But then there was, I had no choice as an employee, but to rebel and change job. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I think it's important also to say that uh, it's, uh, it, 
it's at any level of, I mean, in lower and middle income countries, um, the implications are much more severe, but it happens all throughout and the Chinese power dynamic just needs to be stopped. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.